I expect that probably more than half of my probability of dying in the next 10 years is from that. Yes. So, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, but that being said, you know, uh, probably 50% or more than 50%, I expect, or like a bit more, I expect things to go really well, like much better than like current life for like the vast majority of people, if not literally completely. Hi everyone, I'm Bolaszke, the host of the iScientist podcast, and I'm really, really happy to introduce my third guest. Today is Bogdan Kirste, uh, Romanian origin person who I knew as a student almost 10 years ago. The time is really flying, right? <laughs> and I remember you were around the all the hackathons that we organized when I was the head of the Center for Data Science, uh, you, uh, you were a fixture actually, and uh, I remember we had a lot of interesting conversations that time. Uh, but then we went in different directions, and you went in a very interesting direction, and I will ask you about that a little bit later, but let's start with your personal journey. So you, I know you came from Romania, you did a master there in Bucharest, and then you suddenly joined MVA, which is the best AI master in Paris. Like we know that anybody comes from there, we can accept it for a PhD. So how did this happen? And how did you, when you grew up, uh, how did you decide to become a scientist? Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Very, very excited to be here and to chat. Um, yeah, so, um, so I have a background in uh, a bachelor's in computer engineering um, in Romania. Uh, or kind of like the equivalent of, a, of an M1. So that's what happened before I joined um, MVA. But um, actually I had done one year, one Erasmus year in France uh, at Pierre Marie Curie, at the University of Pierre Marie Curie. So that like influenced, um, that definitely influenced me uh, being in France for the, for the MVA. Um, on becoming a scientist, I guess, to be honest, I'm not sure I had yeah, I'm not sure in my mind it was becoming a scientist necessarily. It was more like being uh, excited and like intellectually interested in topics like uh, AI and I guess uh, maybe somewhat stereotypically or maybe like um, kind of like, like a contrast <laughs> given that I'm now working on AI safety. I like some of my interest was um, started from reading uh, Ray Kurzweil, for example. So like from like transhumanist topics in, in some sense. And um, yeah, AI, so I did a bachelor's in engineering in computer science. Um, I had become excited about programming uh, in high school, though relatively late in high school. Also like software engineering jobs in Romania seemed really well paid. So that also, that also played a part. So initially I thought, I don't know, maybe I would just become a software engineer in Romania. I didn't necessarily think I would do research in AI. But like, so like it was a mix of all of those factors. Um, and then uh, in university, I got, I became more excited about like AI in particular. And uh, yeah, that's what led to, to, to the MVA. I see. And so MVA is a master in 
in Paris. So after that, you did a PhD and you did your PhD at Telecom Paris Tech. You finished in 2016, right? A bit later, so uh, end of 2018. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, yeah. And the, your PhD was on handwriting recognition and you used uh, as a, a specific architecture that became very well known since. But that time you were one of the pioneers who actually touched it, right? So what yeah, so, yeah, so actually my, uh, <laughs> to be totally honest, my interest in that PhD was, was like mostly around deep learning. Handwriting recognition was just, yeah, one, one application area that turned out to be like the, the PhD program I, I got into, but I was mostly excited about uh, about deep learning and I had, so I actually had a, uh, a year in industry in between my uh, master's and, and uh, starting the PhD and already at that time I had seen, it was around 2013, so uh, you know, the DeepMind DQN Atari paper came out then and also Word2Vec came out and those made a bit of an impression on me. So yeah, I think those were yeah, two big factors. Um, also during the, the master's too, I had, uh, I, I had been interested in uh, deep learning though I wasn't um, super familiar with it at the time. But I was, I was excited about uh, deep belief networks, for example. But it, you worked specifically on transformers, right? Uh, no, I actually worked on yeah. worked on LSTMs. Ah, I see. Okay. okay <laughs> I worked mostly with LSTMs, and and uh, I also had towards the end of my PhD, I had um, I tried to combine the classical recurrent neural networks with kind of like a quantum computing architecture. So, uh, <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't end up uh, actually working with transformers during my during my PhD, but I did work with recurrent okay. neural networks. Okay. So then. You did an interesting move. So you, you went to Oxford to do a postdoc, but yep. not in a computer science department, no? Uh, uh, actually, yeah. So I did a, I did a postdoc with Fabio Cuzzolin, um, but the project in machine learning, but the project right. was at the intersection of uh, machine learning and neuroscience. So uh, with collaborators, so at Oxford Brookes University, I should say, uh, and with collaborators from Cambridge University from, from the neuroscience department there. Um, looking at machine theory of mind. So theory of mind is this uh, set of uh, capabilities, I guess, of people to infer the mental states of others. Um, and so I was, uh, I was very interested. So yeah, maybe this will already go a bit into the safety side, but like okay. during my PhD, I became, um, so like I had bought into the AI safety arguments uh, since around 2013 or 2014. So definitely after Spur Intelligence came out in 2014 and I read it, I was kind of convinced that at some point that this would be a problem at some point and that maybe I might want to work on this at some point. Uh, but I thought at the time that that point might be quite far off. So maybe, I don't know, 2045, 2050, and maybe I would get the chance to become a machine learning professor or something like that. And then I would have, I would be well placed to, to do research on that. Um, also at the time when I was looking at the existing research around 2013 or 2014, it just seemed very mathematical and very abstract. I wasn't sure how I could contribute anyway, even if I wanted to, because I felt like I'm, I'm more, I was more on the engineering side, uh, more on computer science, machine learning. Uh, so yeah, at the time it, it felt like, okay, this is, seems interesting, seems like a big problem at some point, but maybe like, I wasn't sure what to do about it. And then as my PhD went on, and because I, I was actually looking at the state of the field, um, 
things kept happening faster than I thought they would. So AlphaGo happened, all the like StarCraft playing, Dota playing agents happened. And then of course, already around 2018, 2019, uh, Bird happened uh, and some other, yeah, GPT-2 happened. So already some decent language models. Uh, and this one was probably the one I expected least. So language models were the, uh, I expected language processing capabilities to happen much later. Um, Why? Why? Um, because it feels like one of the most human capabilities. Like, I, I don't think it's all of intelligence or anything, but it's like a very distinct human capability. And I, I would have expected it to happen. <laughs> I mean, I would, ex maybe I would still expect it now, actually, to happen relatively close to when we might get something like human level AI or like very capable AI in general. And so all of those seemed like warning signs that uh, things might happen, happen sooner. And like, yeah, <laughs> my, my, I might want to adjust my plans. Like if, yeah. So what, what was your guess that time? What would happen before language models, I don't know, get to this level of GPT-4? Oh, I didn't necessarily have, have like a very strict ordering or something like that. I just thought that things would move slower <laughs> than they nice. did. And so because because they moved faster, I felt like maybe I should try to get into as like try to get as close to AI safety as soon as I can. And like instead of trying to wait to become a professor and then decide on what to I and like have freedom to work on whatever, maybe I should just like try to make moves <laughs> to getting closer to it. And so that's how how the applying how like working in that postdoc happened. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I should say so. Yeah, on the theory of mind, I was I was especially interested. I still am, in uh, like inferring preferences, uh, like inferring other humans' preferences, and also like um, being motivated to fulfill others' preferences uh, for like ultimate reasons. And so that was the part which I was most interested in, which seemed and still seems very relevant to safety. Although in the meantime, I've also, uh, I'm also interested in like inferring beliefs, uh, the inferring belief side of theory of mind. But now I think more from an evaluation point of view, like if a model can infer your beliefs really well, it might also be very capable of manipulating you, of lying to you. And so I, in the meantime, I, <laughs> I've kind of like, uh, like my interest in theory of mind has expanded even more. Okay. Uh... So we'll get there because I, I I'm really curious about the relationship between theory of mind and safety. But just let's just finish the the personal journey because you did a very interesting move at the, after your postdoc, which is it's quite rare. You already explained it a little bit what was what your thinking was, but I I don't actually know what you do now. It seems like your 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 LinkedIn page you you are an independent researcher on AI safety. How does it work? Yeah, so it's kind of a funny story, I guess, and like uh, maybe even more idiosyncratic than the story I've already told. So um, after starting my postdoc, I actually, so like before starting my postdoc, I think I had applied, there's this 80,000 hours website, um, which is a, which is like this website, which gives counseling, free counseling advice for people who want to potentially do uh, the most good they can with their career. And so I was in, so like one of their uh, areas of like one, one area people might apply their careers to potentially do the most good is AI safety. And so I had found out 
I don't actually remember exactly how I came across that website, but there is a bit of intersection between AA safety and um, and eight thousand hours, and more generally, a movement called effect, a social movement called effective altruism. Mm. Um, and so I came across that website. I applied for the for counseling. I think I got rejected, but uh, somebody from Effective Altruism Oxford got in contact with me. Uh, I don't know if they were redirected from eight thousand hours or how it happened. I don't remember exactly. But basically, they um, they suggested that I might want to do this uh, Effective Altruism in depth fellowship. Uh, which was kind of like getting into like more depth into all these topics, including AI safety and others. Um, and so I did that. Uh, it happened that the, the facilitator of that uh, program um, got involved in organizing this AGI safety fundamentals, which is kind of like a web a remote course in some sense, or like reading group, remote reading groups, I guess. And so I did that. Um, and then I became I became kind of like a reading of I don't know how I should put it. We are called facilitators, I guess, which is kind of like a reading group. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the term is. Like you basically direct the, try to steer the conversation or like uh, help with some explanation, uh, help with some explanations and so on. And so like that was kind of like an idiosyncratic way that I got into field building, I guess, because uh, this program is about like getting people familiar with the basics of AI safety. And I think that um, together with the fact that I had quite a bit of space and I'm like very, very grateful for that uh, during my postdoc to think about AI safety in, in general, that led me to being in a, in a pretty good position, I guess, to apply for independent funding, actually, so to do independent research on AI safety. And I also keep doing uh, com uh, AI safety community building, which is which looks quite similar to that reading group, except that uh, most recently I've, I've been doing it in uh, AI safety boot camps in person. So, so yeah, so my, <laughs> my, so I'm funded, I've, uh, I'm funded by Central on Long-Term Risk, which is a, which is an organization focused on uh, risks. They're mostly focused on suffering risks actually. Um, including, uh, and they're mostly from AI, um, to do mostly uh, independent AI safety research. And I also keep doing some uh, community AI safety field building uh, activities. And also my funding, so this is also like the topics I'm interested in are also very much related to what I worked on during the postdoc. So I, I am mostly focused on the intersection of deep learning and neuroscience and also alignment. So what I was, asking you uh, before the technical glitch was um, this unusual move to to be an independent researcher and who are who you're working with and uh, maybe the next question is like how's how's your day how do you motivate yourself because usually when we are in a department we have students we are in a structure it's we go in the office i work with 20 people it's uh, it's relatively easy but you work alone so how do you do that it takes a lot of stamina no yeah, so it's um, so I actually uh, do a few different things. So I'm involved in um, I lead a couple of projects, uh, or like I'm a mentor for a couple of projects, and there, uh, so like I do engage with other people in that way. Um, also, I sometimes sometimes work for this from this place called Trajan House, which is um, a building in Oxford where. Uh, more AI safety people work from, and also more people from the effective altruism community more broadly. 
but I think I'm um, so like it varies, but I think I'm pretty self-motivated. <laughs> um, in general, so I don't I don't think I struggle that much to be motivated to work um, to work on this, uh, both because I think the problem is really important. Unfortunately, I think it might be much more urgent than I would than I thought in the past it might be. Um, yeah, and also I just I just think it's it's really interesting intellectually. So there's also that that side of it. Okay, so 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 you 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 basically work from home, right? Most of the time, yeah. Okay, it's I'm, I mean for me home office it's nice for certain things, but I do want to see people, so that's why I'm asking you this question, like. Uh, who do you meet? Who do you talk to about your ideas, etc.? Yeah, so I do talk um, about my ideas with uh, mostly with other people doing AI safety research. Um, a lot of the time with people doing similarly independent AI safety research. Uh, also with uh, the people from the, um, the projects I, I, I lead. Uh, but yeah, that's... Uh, so yeah, mostly, mostly other AI safety people. And what's what's your what's your KPI? What's your your work output? What what do they expect you to do? Yeah, so um, I think this is quite flexible. Um, I think most uh, AI safety people, um, the way they publish work is uh, on this on these websites called the Alignment Forum, uh, also less wrong, which is very much related, uh, but also like archive preprints, and so. I actually have a lot of drafts. I expect to, to start publishing uh, a lot more of them. I actually haven't published that much. Um, on mostly on like less wrong and the alignment forum, I don't have, uh, yeah, we, uh, for the two projects I'm leading, uh, I think we will have preprints normally, if things go well. Uh, but yeah, I'm, uh, so I'm, most of my time is spent on like trying to build a very conceptual research agenda, I guess. Uh, so for this reason, I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not necessarily thinking about preprints. I'm mostly thinking about, yeah, what, um, what does the problem look like? Although there I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm relatively comfortable with, with where I am and especially what to do about it. <laughs> okay. 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 It's clear now. Uh, so let's let's go to the topic of the the, the main topic of the of this this uh, episode, which is uh, actually there are two. I want to talk to you about uh, language models and safety. So let's start with language model and where are we? I I use I play with GPT four. I have GPT three three point five Chat GPT. I have access to GPT four. I see the improvement, and there was a certain moment this year when people were like every week there was something coming out, it seems that it calmed a little bit, right? So where are we now on LLMs? Uh, what's the latest uh, big thing, the latest news? Where are we going? Uh, to be on honest, I'm not so sure if it comes. So like, I think it's true. Like I do follow machine learning Twitter quite a bit. And uh, like, yeah, the pace seems a bit calmer. Though I wonder if it's not just because there aren't that many ML conference deadlines around. So <laughs> around the next ML conference deadline, I'm not sure. Like, yeah, that's, that's gonna be a good test of like to what degree things have 
have calmed down or not. I, I, I worry they didn't actually. It's just like a small, very, high, very small hiatus in between different conference deadlines and also being summer. Um, yeah, uh, where we are? To be honest, I'm not sure. Uh, so what, what is the, let's say, what is the most surprising thing that LLMs do today to you? Like you said in the beginning that you were surprised how fast it reached human level, what? exactly yeah so i would not i would not necessarily claim that they are so i don't i think it's not that easy to evaluate uh, on which tasks or like competencies they are human level i have just been surprised that uh models can just interact with humans like i was especially surprised that already this was starting to happen around 2018 and now um some people have i, I don't know if i necessarily agree with those things but you know very high profile people like uh, Joshua Bengio or Geoffrey Hinton have argued that in some sense, the Turing test maybe has already been passed by these kinds of systems, uh, which again, it's not like if you asked me 10 years ago, when we first started chatting, uh, I would not have expected it to happen this soon. Uh, in terms of most surprising capabilities, I guess it's just, uh, it's in context learning, I would say is a relatively surprising one and so it's like a set of capabilities like these models being able to to learn new tasks or like to combine uh previously learned tasks um uh, in terms of like a very specific task and also related to ai safety i've been surprised by uh by minerva uh so like by models being able to to do math very well uh for a bunch of reasons one is that um, there used to be this argument uh, around 2020. I think there were a couple of papers claiming that if you looked at these scaling laws of like how models tend to improve with like scale uh, on math, they seemed it seemed like there there wasn't that much improvement at the time. So people were projecting that maybe if you just scale up language models, they won't get better at math. So it seemed like maybe there would be some capabilities on which they are like inherently limited. And so, you know, language models will not, will, will not lead to human level AI or something. Uh, and for it's me- It's already surprising, isn't it, that they can do math? Yeah. Trained on text mainly. Or are they, are they, are they also trained on math? So they are trained on archive papers, but you ah. know. <laughs> But but yeah, still. Um, and so related to the AI safety argument, uh, I think a lot of people in AI safety, or at least some people um, who had relatively influential views, um, didn't ex like expected some kind of planning to be required for this kind of skills and language models to be bad at planning, which I, I think is fair. Like planning is one of their weaknesses, probably. What does it mean, planning? Explain it to those who perhaps not familiar with it. Yeah, so I guess something like, um, you know, you have a state you want to reach and then you try to optimize, you're trying to find something like the best trajectory to reach that specific state. So I asked something to GPT-4, like a goal, like tell me how to get to New York, something like this. Yeah. And then GPT-4, breaks it down to to steps that's what it means because i use planning in a, a reinforcement learning 
yeah. a sense which is different a little bit. Yeah, um, I think what, yeah, this, the example you gave sounds reasonable. <laughs> um, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure how you, uh, in which way you're thinking about planning and reinforcement learning. Uh, ah, planning and reinforcement learning is that you have a model of the world. You simulate from the model, so it's basically the analogy for humans. It's 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 thinking, because <laughs> oh. what you what one way of thinking about thinking is that you have a model in your head, mm -hmm. and this model simulates the world. In this model in your head, you can you can do certain actions which you don't really do. And it, at the end, if you die in your head, you don't die really. That's mm -hmm. why we do the do this planning. And then you run these sort of simulations in your head. I'm talking about the reinforcement learning algorithm. So you it's called rollout, mm -hmm. where you simulate between taking an action and then looking at what state you, you get into according yeah. to your model. You run it, run these simulations and then you reach a state and then you choose the the rollout which reached the state you want to get in and then you execute its first action. That's basically planning in a nutshell in reinforcement learning. But I think this is not used in the same way for language models. Yeah, so um, I guess what I was trying to get at. So yeah, that sounds, <laughs> your description sounds very reasonable, like sounds like Monte Carlo's research or something like that. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, I guess what I was trying to get at is that I would expect, so like, I would expect intuitively that a lot of math proofs like benefit from that kind of process. And the fact that language models can achieve the same results, even if it's not clear they do the same thing internally was surprising to me. And I think probably to a few other people at least. But in my mind, language models don't really do this. They generate the, the plan as text. They don't simulate various trajectories and then take the one that reached it because they, they can't even check because normally you do reinforcement learning in the in like robotics where or, or self-driving car where you do the planning and then you do execute the first step and then you check where you are really <laughs> that's a big part of the planning because you you have a good world model but you cannot trust it completely so you're not executing like 100 steps of your plan you execute one step you stop you look where you are and you restart the full process that's how say uh, self-driving cars control the wheel yeah so i agree that the explicit like models are not trained like language models are not trained to do this explicitly and they also are not like at inference they don't do this explicitly although i think if you <laughs> If you start looking at things like chain of thought and then self-consistency, I think, you know, the boundary becomes a bit less clear. And also, yeah, I think it's just interesting that behaviorally they seem able to do theorem proving even without uh, this, this like explicit mechanism. I see, I see, I see. I see. So it's like, yeah, it's what we call reactive policy in reinforcement learning, which doesn't do the planning. It just it just uh, trusts its policy, what to do next, and then it works. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay, so this is the most surprising thing for you that uh, language models can 
provide plans? I mean, maybe I should add one more, which is even more relevant from a safety point of view. Um, if you know about the example of uh, GPT-4 being prompted, um, well, I might tell the story badly, but um, basically GPT-4 um, had to, uh, like, uh, got a human to provide it with the answer to a CAPTCHA test. And the human, uh, while GPT-4 was interacting with the human, um, the human asked, uh, why do you need me to do this? Are, are you an AI? Are you trying, well, I'm paraphrasing, but like, are you trying to take over the world or something? And um, GPT-4 had chain of thought. So like the, the testers, uh, so the, the people testing GPT-4 could see its chain of thought. And in its chain of thought, um, it So what is, said, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. What is the chain of thought and what did they exactly see? Yeah, so chain of thought is this, uh, is this relatively simple idea, I guess, where you use, you have the model uh, produce the next, uh, you have the model output something and uh, its output, so like the next word becomes its, uh, its next input. And so, um, but that's how it works anyway, no? Yes. But the, uh, okay, so I should say that like uh, with specifically with chain of thought, you can have some um, like when you provide the final answer, for example, when GPT-4 interacted with the human, it didn't necessarily show the human the chain of thought of reasoning, which led it to the final answer. So like the human it interacted with only saw its final answer. It didn't see like the the reasoning steps, the intermediate steps, which would be the chain of thought. And so... Where, where does it appear? Because for me, GPT is basically a big neural net that takes as input history of 2000 something tokens and outputs a probability distribution for next word from which we pick one word yep. randomly with the probability. Yep. So where, what else? So where, where does it appear in this generative process something that's hidden oh so um it's it's the same so like the process is the same it's just um i think it's basically again this idea of in context learning that is you can you can prompt the model with a few examples of like uh these are some examples uh, like these are the intermediate steps and then this is the final answer and if you prompt it in that way, it can learn to like be able to do uh, intermediate uh, chains, chain of thoughts, um, and then uh, provide the final answer based on that chain of thoughts. And so, yeah. It's I see, I see. So yeah. it's basically, it produces a piece of text that it inputs it back and produces the next one and inputs it back, but it doesn't yeah. show this. Yes, and nice. and it it like it's formatted so that the task is only uh, it's only scored on the task based on the final answer, not on the rest. I see, I see. So it's basically this kind of this other kind of thinking which we do in math, right? Like we we go step by step, and we sort yeah. of like mentally keep in mind the the the, the point where we reached. Yeah, then, exactly. Then we go next step. Okay. Yeah, so, so like the most famous, I guess the most famous prompt for this chain of thought, it's, it's literally, let's think about this step by step. <laughs> so 
if you prompt language models, some language models, like some capable language models, if you prompt it with this, uh, they can do much better on, on some tasks which require this kind of like, uh, yeah, multi-step kind of like uh, reasoning. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yes, yes. Okay, I got it. I got it. So this is a surprising thing for you. So, uh, yeah, so like yeah. what happened actually was that um, the model reasoned in chain of thought that it should not tell the human that it is an AI. Instead, it told the human it, it's visually impaired. And so for, for me, it's a surprising, you know, I mean, I don't know if surprising, <laughs> maybe more worrying than surprising. So it's like, uh, it's like an instance of um, instrumental deception, basically. So the model lied in order to get to accomplish the task it was set to accomplish. So now that is get, get a human to reply uh, to, to do a capture for it. Now we get into the juicy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> because for lying, it has to have a self. <laughs> for lying, you have to know what the truth is and deliberately say the opposite. And I'm not sure if we can say this about GPT, but I understand that the interpretation the behavior looks like lying. Can we say this? Yeah, so yeah, maybe lying was a bit too strong of a claim. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess lying requires, I don't know if it necessarily requires the self, but it does require the model to like know the truth and deliberately say something different. So yeah, um, I guess I'm not, I would suspect the model was probably prompted with like your language model. So if you think that it's decent at processing its prompt, maybe it already knew the truth <laughs> that it's not a visually impaired person, but, but probably like stronger evidence about what's going on inside it would be needed to make this claim uh, like very confidently. Uh, but the yeah, other it... question on this would be that, uh, I mean, Yudkovsky talks about this a lot, that it's really hard to know it, it, it learned like it, it was fed like for four terabytes of text, which is an immense quantity of text. And probably among that text, there is a lot of text which does this, right? Yes. So it, learned, so... it, it learns from the text that it, this is possible to when, when somebody asks you, why do you want to solve the capture? Because somebody writes how to hack, you just say that you are visually impaired. So it's somebody uh, else who lied on the web and that GPT just learned that. Yeah, but that does not match with the chain of thought, right? Where it was like, I am an AI and I should not say that I am an AI. Because that would have made sense. Like, sure, it could have done that just because- I think there are a lot of science of... fictions where AI does this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is also plausible, yeah. Like how? to start with you know yeah although I exactly guess... what it did you know it uh, misguided the mis misled the human to reach a state which it wanted and it was against what the human wanted but yeah. that was that that was like a science fiction and it was a slightly different context in the sense that how you know it's it's uh, 2000 space odyssey that that machine was some somehow embodied it was it was the spaceship and it had a task to reach right 
and he felt that hum the human was doing things to avoid to reach that that task. So it's some somehow it becomes this singularity story, which we'll get to. But it was it was definitely science fiction when AI already had a, a will to do something, right? And I am just you know when I talk to GPT four, I don't feel this way yet. But maybe I'm mistaken. Yeah. So um, I think for for this specific um, this specific story I, I was telling. Um, it's like the my interpretation be that the model was trying to do this very specific task. It was like prompted or even trained to do. Um, and so for doing this very specific task uh, in that specific context, it was useful for it to uh, to basically mislead the human it was interacting with. Um, on whether GPT-4 has this kind of like will, um, actually, I I am very much into like this framework for trying to understand language models, which is called um, simulators. Uh, and they're also so like this was uh, uh, less wrong or like alignment forum post. So, uh, so it came from the AI safety community, but there are also a bunch of uh, works from the broader machine learning community, which try to um, frame language models uh, as doing something like Bayesian inference as being something like simulators with multiple simulacra and like depending on the context a different simulacrum is uh, instantiated you you have to explain these things so what do you mean by Bayesian inference and, and simulator and simulacra because you know our audience i want it to be wider than just you know the internal machine learning experts yeah so um the idea is something like um if you think about the like the text that GPT-4 uh, is trained on. Uh, that text is so like the entire web, to, to like roughly speaking. Um, that Everything text is ever written, <laughs> you yeah. usually say. Yeah, so that, that, text is, that text is like very incoherent. So like if you look at two different web pages, they can be, they can come from like totally different perspectives. They can be written at totally different times. They can have world models which are completely incoherent and so on. And so the idea is that when you train a language model to, pro to predict the next word in all this like vast collection of text, uh, like a, a simplification of the story is something like it will learn text generating processes. It will learn like a mixture of text generating processes, which roughly approximates that whole mixture of like web pages. And so the, you should probably not expect it to learn a single coherent thing you should probably expect it to learn like this mess, like mixture of a mess of different text-producing processes, and so like. But I would agree if it was not trained autoregressively. Hmm. So basically, what I mean, what autoregressivity means, is basically you you train it to output the next word, and then you input the next word into the the history. So in the, for the word after that, the the word that it generated becomes part of the text. So this is designed to generate coherent text. But like the teaching with it, the teaching is the like learning is with teacher forcing, right? So you're, you're, it only sees true inputs. It never sees its own inputs uh, during the original pre-training. Yeah. So um, 
yeah um yeah so like i guess where i was going with this is something like so like these text producing processes are like the simulacra in that terminology uh -huh. and uh this simulacra can be pagentic like you can yeah well <laughs> this is gonna be like the, the terminology here might come um so like you can have texts which are about um i don't know optimizing for something maybe like if you think about the text of a math proof uh the math proofs tries to go towards the answer so it tries to go to some specific state but the simulator which is like the whole language model is not uh, agentic itself the simulator in that framework is just kind of like doing bayesian inference over like which process from the mixture should I now sample from? And so the I, see, here, I see, yeah. I see, I see. So it's like, uh, okay, I'm here in the history of the text that was generated, and then yeah. I pick a submodel or a text from which now the next word will come from. Yeah, exactly. Right. So like basically, I use the context, the previously the text which was in my context. Um, to basically try to infer from which mix, which part of that mixture I should next sample from. Yep. Mm. Okay, and so I understand now this. What was that you were saying with this simulacra and agentic? Yeah, so I would not, I, I guess for this reason, I wouldn't expect GPT-4 to be, at least after pre-training only, like before the um, training with human feedback, I would I would not expect it to be coherent, uh, which is what what you were saying that it doesn't feel that GPT four doesn't necessarily feel that coherent. If I if I got that right. No 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 it does it does mm. actually, I I would ever I mean that was my impression too like five years ago that these things will never work, but then it's first you know the sentences became coherent like syntactic. And then the paragraphs were still like weird, like going from nowhere to nowhere. And then the paragraphs became coherent, but still there was no essay. And today with GPT-4, I mean, that's, 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 I think this is what surprised people that it's, it can generate a full essay, which is novel in a certain sense. And it's coherent. It's not necessarily true, <laughs> which is the problem. But we do this too as humans, so it's it's not yeah. necessarily non-human. Yeah? But I guess that's that's not what I meant. I meant uh -huh. so yeah, it, it can generate like like long text with uh, like relatively long pieces of text with internal coherency. But what I meant is more like um, you know it can inherit it can like um play different personas which are not coherent nice. among themselves i see so and that's uh, that's an argument for against the turing test um, no i i guess i see it as an argument so like you know i, I come at this mostly from the perspective of like um, ai safety arguments which in the past were a lot about what if you have this agent which has a, a single very specific goal and if that goal is not like very close to human values, like it's like uh, things could go very badly. And the the point of the I guess the main point of that simulator's post um, was something like um, that's not a good framework to think of uh, about language models. So 
it's not like a single agent or not. It's like this simulator of different processes, some of which can be agentic, actually. Aha, so it's 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 uh, schizophrenic. <laughs> I guess that, that that's one way to put it. Although I have to caveat that, like, um, yeah, you might expect expect the reinforcement learning with human feedback uh, process to potentially make move it more towards something more coherent and more. Yeah, actually, this this is very interesting. This is very interesting because that was my impression that without the so the GPT three had the version, I guess, which wasn't uh, reined in yet. And I loved the confabulations. You know, it was really interesting. That was something I was looking for because, you know, inspiring me or, or generating texts that are completely out of nowhere. And and then the reinforcement learning came in. It really feel like uh, an anti-schizophrenia drug. <laughs> like it dumped down the creativity, and it was like like even i would say like it's i don't know you know this cognitive behavioral therapy where the goal is just to to, to basically change your psychology through changing your behavior and that's what i felt like it, it really learned you know how to behave like a little bit like a dog you know yeah actually that's that's it's, those are some very interesting remarks so I, I know some people in AI safety who are actually trying to use the base models because they are trying to, to um, have GPT uh, help them uh, produce alignment research. And so they want a more creative model. They don't want the reined in model for that reason. Um, also, your, your point about like, like kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, quite a few people in AI safety complain about um, RLHF, RL from human feedback, because it only acts like at a behavioral level, like you're not you don't know what how the internals are changing. You're just trying to produce to make it produce some certain behavior, but you don't really have good control over the internals. So that that's, that brings up another experiment I did. So John Verbecki had a um, remark. It was still before GPT-4. It's it's a very interesting uh, dialogue Turing test, and I think it's it could be used. Uh, more like rigorously than I did, but uh, the basic idea is that you just take two language models and you make them dialogue. Like one, you know, two two entities mm -hmm. of the same uh, same algorithm, but you enter what the one says as the history for the other. And for GPT four, I could actually even explicitly ask them to do uh, dialogue. Mm -hmm. So. So ask them to talk about a subject in a dialogue format. Mm -hmm. So GPT-3 was terrible at this. It went to nothingness in like five iterations, just repeating the same word. And GPT-4 was much more interesting, but it still didn't pass the Turing test. So, so this is interesting because I, I, you, you, you read the dialogue and you definitely see it's not two people. Because what happened was it for certain topics it, it did understand the concept of presenting the subject in dialogue format but mm -hmm. at, at a certain point it went out of it, it didn't like it didn't spark 
interest in a conversation that was like in our case like it's it's like meandering in all kind of topics it it went down into a sort of like a fixed point the fixed point of gpt3 was like just the same sentence over and over it was really really stupid gpt4 it was different it started to thank the other I think that's definitely reinforcement learning with human feedback. Like it was really, really polite with the other GPT-4. And it kept summarizing the dialogue with different words. So it wasn't a, a, a trivial fixed point. It wasn't the same sentence over and over, but the same summary with different words, which I use, you know, there are these tools now where you can ask to rephrase what you wrote. And that's what I felt it was doing. But it didn't have the this, you know, you really see that there's nobody behind because it doesn't really have any interest in anything or any any memory of like personal stories that would trigger us or you and like you and me to go into different directions. It was really boring at the end, one would say. Yeah, that that sounds very interesting. Actually, if you if you publish this or if you have already published this, this might be. It reminded me of these um, stories of how reinforcement learning might cause this mode collapse phenomenon, which sounds yeah. exactly sounds like what you described for GPT three. Like yeah, I have a blog on some... this. I can I receive. Oh, cool! It. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, so, that I, GPT... so I think this this dialogue Turing test is still not passed. But so when you mentioned that Benjo and Hinton think uh, that we are over the Turing test maybe in certain conversations it does but it's definitely possible i think to not to trick but to 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 push it in a direction where it becomes obvious that there's nobody in there you know oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i i think that the robustness of these systems is still <laughs> very very far from like human robustness so yeah but yeah, I, I'm I'm very interested actually to yeah read okay. the post because it sounds like a very interesting, like a less boring kind of mode collapse. I'm really curious to see what exactly. That looks like. No, that was exactly my my thing. Like I think what happens is that with reinforcement learning with human feedback, these modes are still there, but they are more complex. Mm -hmm. And when I asked about photography, for example, they were discussing photography. What was going on? That the two agents started to talk about different types of photography very detailed instructions of how to do this how to do that how to do that and then it was just going over and over there were so many different types of photography that i couldn't wait to the end you know i don't know what would have happened at the very end or maybe just circles back to portrait photo again so that was also like okay it's not like two humans talk you know yeah interesting okay. so uh, perhaps um, explain me what alignment is yeah so um i think probably different people would uh propose different definitions depending on like how you want to frame the problem i guess the most general framing would be something like uh making especially very powerful ai just go well as a whole <laughs> but that's a bit vague i find um i'm particularly interested in this um framing which comes from paul cristiano of intent alignment 
which is getting the AI to try to do what you want it to do. Uh, yeah, so that's that's what I'm mostly focused on, which is so like that's related to the theory of mind, right? Yeah, because it has to be able to you know, infer basically what you want it to do. Though you can also help it with like communication and so on. But yeah, but like um, actually the part where most alignment people are focused is not um, uh, what you want it to do, because I guess many of them expect that part to kind of, I guess the argument goes something like uh, a very powerful AI will probably be able to do that anyway, or otherwise it would not be very dangerous. Uh, so, uh, but the more, it's more the motivation part, the trying uh, to do what you want to do which is, yeah, which I guess a lot of the focus uh, in alignment has been like really, yeah. Uh, I also have to say that like, there's also the, like AI safety is broader than that. So like you might try to make the system safer even if maybe you don't know how to solve alignment, uh, but yeah. Okay, uh, so let's talk about uh... AI safety, because one of the big issue in the debates, like there was the monk debate, I want to bring it up because there is a certain metaphor there that I like very much, uh, where there is a sort of contradiction between immediate issues, like people losing their jobs or people getting uh, triggered by something that they read that the, the AI model generates and longer term issues like singularity, which seem out of science fiction, right? So it's not necessarily people argue about whether we should do safety or not to do safety, but what is the time scale? And time scale is, is a killer because basically this is why, in my opinion, even reinforcement learning, so even the, the, the learning paradigm where you have an objective and you want to reach it is far from well, the paradigm that we cover intelligence because basically time scale is what makes it unsolvable. Like you never know, it's not that you never know, but as a, as a, as a living being, you, you constantly have to balance between your, the, 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 the things that you do in terms of time scale. Like, there's an immediate danger I have to do something, or maybe I'm thinking about next day, I, I lost my keys, I have to make a copy, or maybe you're thinking about next year, or maybe you're thinking about your life goals, or maybe you're thinking about like the goal of humanity, and those things are not comparable, and you have constantly have to calibrate this time timeline in, in which you're trying to optimize something. So what do you think about this? Um, I think that, so like, I'm very happy that people are, that there are, uh, quite a few people working on near term safety issues. Um, I personally think mostly about, uh, well, I guess I would have called them longer term issues, except that now I'm not so sure if they're going to be longer term, but I do mostly think about, um, I guess singularity related scenario in some sense, or like to be more precise, uh, scenarios involving AIs, which could, uh, take over the world or make humanity extinct or like, uh, yeah, like very, very capable systems. 
and like what to do about um, existential safety, basically. So this falls under this idea of existential safety. Um, so which one worries you more? What, what is your research concentrated on more? Yeah, so I'm mostly, um, so my views, like these are my particular views, like uh, within existential safety views can differ a lot, but like, um, I think that uh, trying to align super intelligence directly uh, hasn't fared well, like approaches which try to do that haven't, sorry, um, haven't done very well. Uh, and so I'm mostly excited about kind of like a two-prong, uh, two-step approach, which is actually what seems to be OpenAI's main plan, um, which is try to align uh, well enough models which can automate alignment research, uh, uh, which are maybe roughly human level, let's say, so like which are not strongly superhuman, and then use those systems uh, in collaboration with humans to solve the more ambitious super intelligence alignment kind of problem. I see, and so I'm... it's like, because I, I, I saw your tweet about uh, this new uh, OpenAI initiative. So they have basically three directions. First is human feedback, mm -hmm. which is uh, what's being done now. The second one is, is that I, I found that actually more interesting because the third one is what you're talking about is that basically make alignment automated with an agent. The second one was so interesting. They had this different type of, uh, of collaborations, like debating or reward modeling. Like you want to model, it's exactly what you were talking about, like uh, try to model what the other wants, right? Yep. Or debating or like, that's like, okay, how we align ourselves, let's say, I don't really believe that like classical debating really works for that but but i i understand the concept like let's let's do it like humans do it like we run a a, a debate so so you're saying that you you like the third third one the training the automated ai alignment agent yeah so i guess um I'm coming from the perspective of, um, as far as I can tell, approaches which have tried to solve directly for aligning super intelligence haven't done really well. So I'm relatively pessimistic that we can, that uh, alignment researchers can do that, uh, especially if timelines are relatively short. So especially if we get powerful AI relatively soon. And given that the number of people working on these problems is relatively small. And so, yeah, unless this, uh, unless many more people start working on this or unless some kind of like very unexpected breakthrough happens, I'm, I'm relatively pessimistic about plans which try to solve directly for lining super intelligence. Uh, the reason I'm... So what, uh, can you elaborate this? So what are you pessimistic about? I, I'm relatively pessimistic about trying to do, uh, trying to work, like trying to have human researchers uh, directly align come up with proposals which directly align super intelligence instead of like trying to delegate parts of this research to like um, al automated alignment research basically. Uh, why? why are you pessimistic? Yes. Yeah. So the reasons I'm pessimistic are that historically the, the people who have tried to work on this, so uh, Machine Intelligence Research Institute, Eliezer Yudkowsky and uh, related people as far as I can tell. Well, that's a very small number of people, 
but like basically uh that line of research as far as i can tell hasn't done that well uh, so like I, I i don't want nobody to work on it but i i want more people to work on that soon even though i'm pessimistic about it but if i feel like if that's our main plan we are probably gonna fail because the problem seems very hard uh there aren't that many people working on it. I don't expect there to be a lot more people working on it in the near term, unless something that drastic changes, like a lot of academia suddenly start thinking about this problem or something. And so given our like past track record, not that there's anything wrong with like what the people uh, doing that line of research, right? But just like, it seems hard. And as far as I can tell, there isn't that much progress on trying to attack the problem directly. And Comparatively, I'm more optimistic about the open AI, especially like the super alignment post, if you saw that one. Um, because in principle, if you get human level alignment, uh, if you get GPT-6 or whatever to do human level alignment research, even if you only got it to, to work for you for like one year in calendar time, that could produce the equivalent of like a lot of, I don't know, millions of years of alignment research. Uh, just because you can run that, uh, you can parallelize that, you can run a bunch of copies much faster. Uh, and also you can like very easily turn money into alignment research in principle, if you get there. While today we are bottlenecked on talent, on money, on like everything. So, <laughs> so, so let me stop you. So basically the proposal is that we'll do these agents who will do the alignment, but aren't we just you know, biting our own tail there? Like who will align the aligner, you know? <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't, first of all, I like on the agent side, like, you know, you can have a spectrum of like how much, uh, to what degree do you delegate? Like, and like how many humans do you keep in the loop and to what degree do you keep humans in the loop or not? And I think there's like many different, uh, yeah, that, that's to explore. That's like a hyperparameter to explore. Um, I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, actually people who are pessimistic about this kind of plan uh, seem to tend to think something very similar to what you're mentioning. Like maybe this problem, like aligning roughly human level alignment researchers, like doing automated alignment research at the human level might be as hard um, as the whole problem, like aligning super intelligence. And in that case, yeah, it's not it would not be productive to work on this i am relatively more optimistic uh i don't know based on like some intuitions uh, language models seem relatively easy to align if you're not if you're like actually trying to get them to help you like if you're not uh deliberately trying to mislead them to like from them adversarially or so on and so i'm relatively optimistic that on this path if like the current trajectory will be uh, like what the most capable AIs look like. It might be easy to, it might still be easy to automate, uh, to like align language models, even as they get more capable. So I already mentioned Minerva, which can do map. Um, the like alignment research looks quite a bit like that, though not, not only like that. So I'm relatively optimistic that um, you can get alignment research capabilities as these models get better at math research, machine learning research, uh, and so on. And I'm also optimistic with respect to like, um, you mentioned the training signal. Uh, yeah, so one, another orientation for optimism is something like uh, verifying alignment research uh, or like doing peer review on alignment research uh, 
seems to me intuitively much easier than producing the alignment research. Uh, as is the case from, for like machine learning more broadly, I would say. So I am optimistic that we can probably produce a decent reward signal. I also, I have more like the some thought, some areas I'm specifically looking into, which are related to uh, the intersection of neuroscience and deep I learning. See. So, so are this, is little, this is a little bit like when people say, I cannot define this concept, but I know when I see it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know how to do the aligning agent, but I will know when it really works. I see. Yeah, and it's related to all the theoretical arguments about, you know, P versus NP. Verification usually tends to be Yeah, verification is always easier. Yeah. Okay, so it, it related a little bit. So, so there is a, a school which is not very well known in alignment research because it comes from cognitive science. And it's very interesting for me that uh, basically if you ask Yosha Benjo, he says, don't put agency into AI or don't put AI into agents. And by agents, he means something that acts in the real world, like a robot. <laughs> and my intuition, which is aligned <laughs> to this other school, is that we exactly have to do this. We have to put AI into agents because that's the only way that AI will align itself to reality. Mm. Like, we just have to trust that it. Like, okay, of course you will not put it in a in a in a bomb, nuclear bomb. You put it in a small robot maybe, or you put it in your toaster in your kitchen, and then it can confabulate as much as it wants, but it will have ways. To check it like you know in the scientific method we generate hypotheses if they are all true then we're not doing our work so there are false hypotheses there are confabulations but then we have a very embodied physical methodology to check whether what we think about the world is true or not and this will only happen if it's in agents and especially embodied agents that 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 are physically present in the world yeah, um, I think I think at least among AI safety people, um, they they mostly use the term agency to respect to refer to something closer to that idea of something like optimizing for a terminal state that I mentioned, or like uh, consequentialism, which is kind of like that. Uh, I think most uh, within AI safety that like agency is mostly used to refer to something like that. Uh, rather than some more something like embodiment. Um, I see. Okay. Yeah. So maybe this is just, uh, we don't use it in the same way. Yeah. Unlike, yeah. unlike uh, agents versus oracles or something like that, like Yosha Benjo's thoughts. Yeah. I, I, I'm unsure. As I was saying, I, I think there's a spectrum there depending on like how cautious you want to be. So like the more cautious you want to be, the more you want to go towards something like oracles. But then it might be harder to scale up automated alignment research if you need to have a lot of humans in the loop, for example. So yeah, I think there's that's something to, yeah, maybe, maybe that's just kind of like an empirical hyperparameter to figure out in some sense. Uh, well, to figure out cautiously, <laughs> I guess. 
Hmm. Um, on embodiment, I think I think I'm relatively optimistic that, and this is very related to like stuff I'm I'm currently researching for like my trying to come up with, with an agenda. Um, uh, there have been a bunch of studies which look at language models and like uh, language networks in the brains of people. And if you expose them to the same inputs, um, you can you can often do you can often correlate very well the insides of language models with fMRI measurements of human brain while they are exposed to the same inputs. And to me, that suggests that you have partially overlapping representations between language models, even if they are not embodied, and humans who are embodied. So I'm I'm relatively optimistic that even language models have for many concepts, especially abstract concepts, have quite grounded representations. And I've seen arguments also that um, may, maybe many of the most abstract concepts like democracy are actually grounded in language. Because yeah, democracy it seems hard. Like what is the referent of the term democracy? Like uh, it kind of seems to me like a very abstract concepts almost by definition don't really have a or like it's harder to find a physical reference. And the, the, for it's me not also, necessarily what I'm saying that you need a physical oh. reference. It's what I'm saying that when you start thinking, so planning in my sense, in the reinforcement learning sense, to try start generating futures like you know singularity versus everything is good. There is no way to 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 know which one is true. Because it's about the future it's a prediction and so what we do is we confront it with reality let it it can be you know physical like you bump into the wall the wall is there it can be social too so it, it can be a, a hypothesis that you have about somebody you talk you confront and it turns out to be false and that's a way to check check whether our confabulations are true or not and the other thing is that like you cannot do this without you cannot live without confabulating so it's, it's not a, not a bug that that language models confabulate it's a feature it's just they they don't have now the, the their only way to to confront it with reality is reinforcement learning with human feedback like their their confrontation now is that they get the thumbs down or thumbs up which is which is already like a rudimentary test about uh, what's true what's not but it's rudimentary right it's it will be aligned with that group of people who are doing the the likes or dislikes which is actually already there like in recommendation engine and stuff so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a technology that works for certain things but if we really want AGI, like agents that are really intelligent, this is, for me at least, it's impossible without embodying them and letting them bind to the reality, bind to people in the sense of checking what's true, what's not true, experimentally, mm -hmm. right? This is what I'm saying, but then, you know, it's a minority opinion, I know. Um, I think I, I think I mostly expect that people are gonna use language models in this way anyway. Like people are gonna try to make them uh, like it's commercially useful for language models to know the truth in some sense or to like uh, 
yeah okay. or but but yeah. it's it's more about not knowing the truth but having methodologies to finding out the truth and i'm not sure if yeah. people i mean maybe i also expect that uh yeah actually i <laughs> in some sense i wish this would this would happen slower because uh but i do expect people to try to overcome this problem in an automated way in some sense uh and i yeah i suspect i suspect quite a few people are probably thinking about something like this because it seems a commercially relevant problem i would also say that it seems a bit scary in the sense of like pushing capabilities forward <laughs> and potentially like shortening timelines to very very capable ai okay so i want i want to talk about this because i i i, I think it's very typical and it's an interesting uh, thing so there is this metaphor that why i was driving back home to to do this podcast i was listening to an interview with yosha benjo who was one of the participants in the monk debates and he was on the side of uh, the cautious or let's say the pessimistic side with uh, mark max tegmark and on the other side there was yalikun which is very interesting because they're friends mm -hmm. and uh, melanie and they i think max had this this metaphor that uh, basically we are in a river mm -hmm. Uh, heading into a, a waterfall and then the different people say different things about this and Joshua says we have to stop <laughs> and Max says it too and on the other side it's more heterogeneous so so basically Yalekan says uh, yes we do we figure out how to deal with this when we get there and Melanie, I think there, there is a misunderstanding because I think she's more sophisticated than uh, what, uh, what Yusha says, because for me, what Melanie said was, we have a lot of rocks between this and, mm -hmm. uh, and the waterfall and we have to deal with them first, you know? So in a sense, it's, yeah, let's deal with the waterfall when we get there, but most importantly, deal with the stuff that we, we, will kill us before we get there. So where are you on this metaphor? Who would you be? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm more, I'm closer to Max and to Joshua than to Jan and especially than to Melanie, I guess, which is probably not surprising since I, I work on AI safety. Um, but I guess I'm like compared to Joshua and Max, I'm relatively more pessimistic about uh, first even like getting people to agree to pause now and then also like one question i asked um other people who seem more optimistic about pausing is okay even if we paused for like six months or one year now what do we do with the pause because it seems to me as i said that before that like progress on learning super intelligence is not going very well maybe we do get maybe in that one year we do get some progress on aligning large language models and maybe we can use large language models to align super intelligence so i'm not saying it's completely useless but if i if like somebody said that like we can only get one year of pause and we can pick the time but like that's it 
I would not pick now. I would pick, as I said, something like automated alignment research. Then that's where I want to pause because that's where you can produce a lot of alignment research in a short amount of time. So that's why, like, where I'm coming from. Um, I think I disagree a bit. So, like, I agree there are issues in the near term. I'm very happy there are people working on them. I, I would hope there are there would be more people working on them. So I agree with Melanie that like it's important to also handle the stuff in between. Uh, that said, I think it's very risky to be like, oh, we'll handle the the, um, the waterfall when we're there, which seems, yeah, like Jan is also saying. I think that's, yeah, that's pretty risky. That seems pretty risky to me. So like, ideally I would want, you know, ideally I would want as much pause as is feasible. Uh, I'm relatively pessimistic about getting it. And based on that, I would want us to get it when it can produce the most impact in terms of alignment research. Also, I have to say, I am not, I think many people in alignment are actually very optimistic about what AI can accomplish if we manage to align it and make it safe more broadly and also solve the governance issues and so on. So, you know, I come, I, I've initially, I was initially interested in this from like the, the very optimistic side, you know, like, um, Rakers are kinds of arguments like hey, I can can give you everything if you solve it. So I still have that optimism if if things go well, but I feel like we have to work for that. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. But what what's most interesting with this metaphor for me is that they all accept it. That there is this waterfall and it's very, very, very telling how people think when they start talking about the, within a metaphor. For me, it's not obvious that we are in a river because the river basically, it's, it's in a certain sense, it's so teleological to say that we are in a river. Like that means that it's going, you know how the rivers are. It's like a tree, but upside down. So there are a lot of ways to get in the river, but it all goes in the same direction and you have no, the only thing you can do is to jump out. Whereas I think the world is not like that. It's the, it's, it's a river upside down. So it's basically, it's, it's branching like a tree. And so your choice is not jumping out or not, or stopping or not. You have to definitely have to do deal with the rocks that will kill you now. So and there is no, I don't see any, you know, counter argument to what Melanie is saying. But in terms of the waterfall, it's not that we will deal with it when we get there. We never get cool. there because we will choose a branch where there's no waterfall. And on top of it, if you, I mean, th th this is really related to what's your general disposition in life how optimistic or pessimistic you are is that I trust that the world is not designed that way, you know, mm. like there is a certain way to live, to align myself. And if everybody does this and we do it as a society, we will choose a path where there's no waterfall. You see, and so it's really hard to argue with somebody who thinks that we are in a river and there's a waterfall and there is not much to just jump out. But it's not obvious to me that that's metaphor is how the world works. It's it's actually it's it's a metaphysical argument to say this, right? 
Yeah, I, I hope you are right. And <laughs> we are not on this path, which is kind of like dangerous by default if we don't do something. Um, I have, I think I have more uncertainty, like much more uncertainty about that based on a couple of things. So I think like in the most abstract and general sense, like we do not, like we don't have methods today to align powerful AI that we would be confident in. We don't even have methods like this for like existing systems, like large language models. Uh, we, we cannot even deal with adversarial examples very well, though this problem has been studied by a lot of people for like more than 10 years now. So like, I think uh, purely technically, we are not there right now. I do hope that if we, I mean, there are a bunch of things here. Maybe we won't even be able to tell when we are very close or like when systems are dangerous because they might hide some, be able to hide capabilities from us. So that's another, another potential worry. And even more, even if we are able to tell, you know, like it takes a small number of actors who are less cautious and who might race ahead, even though maybe most people would agree that it's it's time to pause or to stop because things are getting very dangerous. So I, I, I agree that it's not guaranteed that like for sure we have a waterfall ahead. Like the problem might be there, maybe the problem isn't like alignment might be, might be very easy and solved by default, maybe. Maybe we're just that lucky. Um, yeah, maybe people just stop if they see the danger signs. But I, yeah, I would not want to rely on that, especially where we seem to be now technically, which doesn't, yeah, doesn't look quite like that to me. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I'm not saying that there are guarantees. It's a very interesting. So for me, this comes from the this the, the this amazing success of the scientific revolution that we somehow we are in a in a world metaphysically which is everything emerges from the physical level up and we accept only physical laws as hard constraints and singularity the paperclip maximizer all these scenarios are not physically un, un, uh, unfeasible the reason why i think it will be really hard to implement them is because there are also top-down constraints of how the world works like from from society down to humans there are laws that seem much softer like sociological psychological laws that we don't accept as like hard laws that make the world such that it's very unlikely that we will have a paper clip maximizing singularity and this brings me to you know uh, lex had an interview with george hotz the ceo of uh, tiny corp mm -hmm. it was amazing if you haven't seen it, watch it. And he said something very interesting is that he wants to uh, open source AI. Like he, his, his goal is to, instead of stopping and controlling it, to give it to everybody. Because he basically says that the, the best way to achieve the paperclip maximizing AI is to, to, con to, to give it a small number of people who control it. Because we will build the the sort of tyrannical structures society the, uh, as a society that will be able to manage that control 
and those structures are exactly the, those ones where the, the, the general goodness of people will not emerge because usually in those structures who get on the top and let's say more like to be to be sociopathic or psychopathic bad people mm. and so to counter it the best way not to get the paper clip maximizing singularity ai is to just give it to everybody because if you give it to everybody they're always much more good people than bad people and we'll deal with of course it will be complex it won't be controlled from top down but somehow the you know the world will just go on as it went on with other similar problems so this is his argument and i i, I tend to agree with him like uh, on the and basically it's, it's a very important question because do we open source or do we not open source that's like a immediate question and some companies like uh, meta does it and they are fully signed up for this uh, they okay may, maybe not open sourcing all the weights of the of the networks but at least the architecture and how we trained it so we you know widen the, the people who can actually do the the training and you can make uh, local AI blossom yeah I think um so like I definitely agree that there are these um, governance kinds of problems of like who controls the AI who or like the AGI or the superintelligence who gets to set its objectives and so I, I do think those are very important problems and there is I agree that there's definitely a risk that if you have that decentralized uh, things might go really badly uh, on the other hand I don't fully agree with the idea of the like open source is obviously the way to go because even if you suppose, and I think I would mostly buy the argument that like most people are gonna try to gonna use it in a good way. Um, I'm not so sure that like offense defense balance basically, like just the fact that you have more good people than bad is enough to avoid really catastrophic outcomes. As a simple example, you can think of like an engineer pandemic, which seems to me intuitively like might require uh, much fewer resources to like happen than to stop uh, and so there can be very like bad imbalances uh, between like how many resources it takes to create a problem and then to, to solve it and yeah i feel like there are misuse cases like this one which could go really badly and so i i wish i've seen arguments about open source i think most the vast majority of people in open source are probably well-intentioned i i am excited about tech in general <laughs> i just feel like in this case fully going open source is probably not the best idea at least if you don't like uh, i wish people would just think about like minimal measures like at least when facebook to name call them but yeah puts out uh llama i wish they would at least think about do we have like um engineer pandemics capabilities in that, for example. And it seems like even GPT-4, I don't remember, but I think even RHF GPT-4, like MIT students uh, got some, uh, some of those capabilities out of it in, with just one hour, in just one hour. And so I think, yeah, if we open source- yeah, I mean, George, George's argument to this, because Lex laid exactly the same, 
argument that the data machines out there and if somebody who wants to build a bomb goes to gpt4 to build it it's probably the dumbest idea <laughs> um i'm not sure so like i agree that i i agree that um maybe the most of the most dangerous people already have a lot of that knowledge but i also saw the argument and i think i buy it that gpt4 lowers the threshold of like how much knowledge you need to potentially produce something dangerous and i expect that will probably get worse with more capable systems so like yeah at least mm -hmm. if like okay. and i and i'm less optimistic about in some, some sense i'm less optimistic about you know making models very robust to adversarial prompts than making them helpful on average because that seems kind of like the adversarial examples kind of problem which people have not solved in vision for 10 years. So yeah, that, that just seems potentially harder than aligning language models on average. So what, uh, what is uh, adversarial? What is this adversary? Because you mentioned it several times and maybe it would be a good idea to explain it. Yeah, so adversarial examples are these uh, like uh, images where people these examples where people can just manipulate a single pixel in an image, for example. And uh, so like the image looks indistinguishable to a human before and after the manipulation, but an AI can uh, like say that it looks completely different. Like it might say that the first image contains a bus and the second contains an ostrich. And similarly for adversarial prompts, um, I mean, kind of similarly is the idea that some users might prompt the system in like in ways which might be helpful to the user's intention, but might be detrimental to wider society, for example, like maybe the user wants to create a, an engineer pandemic, which maybe the system in that case is actually helpful to the user, but not like that's bad on a societal scale. Mm -hmm. And so uh, processes like RLHF also try to induce like harmlessness into the system. Uh, yeah, my intuition is that that on, on average, GPT-4 seems pretty helpful to me. But like, if you try to make it very robust to like never be harmful, that seems hard. That seems like a kind of particularly harder problem. So I'm relatively more pessimistic about solving that, like solving harm, harmlessness very robustly than solving helpfulness on average. Mm. Okay, but uh, okay. I just don't see the link with the adversary. So, so you mean like uh, because of the adversarial examples, you're pessimistic about the harmfulness problem because it, there will always be like specifically designed prompts yeah. or waste. Okay, I got it. Yeah, got exactly. It. Yeah, like like people are gonna optimize to make this. So we system. will have to live with it in a certain sense, no? <laughs> so I, I'm, I think unfortunately we might have to live with it for relatively weak systems, uh -huh. I am more optimistic that maybe automated alignment research can solve this harder problem. So that's like my success story. It's like the harder problems, maybe you can get automated alignment research to solve. Okay, got it. Also, also potentially you might want to restrict capabilities. Like, as I was saying, uh, I would hope that the next llama or something that they try to delete those kinds of capabilities before, at least before, making the weights public or like having the weights leak publicly. Uh, you mean the harmful capabilities? Yes, like so, yeah, maybe somewhere where we are, we have 
decent reasons to want to take them out, like you know, uh, offensive cyber like cyber offense, like cyber weapons, or yeah, uh, stuff which can help with engineer pandemics. I don't know, even stuff which like it's less existential, but like having them all help you make a bomb or something. Okay, okay. Well, Bogdan, it was uh, really nice. I have a, one last question to you is, uh, uh, what are your dreams? Where do you think this whole thing is heading? Where, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Oof. <laughs> so, um, yeah, maybe one way to start this is to say that I'm worried that we might already have something like human level AI in the singularity in 10 years. So, yeah. Um, to be honest, I have like in the recent in recent times, I have not spent that much time thinking about uh, what I would do in the very long run, <laughs> especially because my, my timelines for the singularity basically have shortened quite a bit. And so, yeah, I'm mostly I expect that I will probably mostly try to keep working on this problem or at least try to help bring in other people to work on this problem by doing uh, field building. Uh, and yeah, if, if I mean, if things go badly, I suppose I don't have to plan for it because I expect things will probably go very badly for, for everyone, unfortunately. Uh, if things go yeah, really so you bad. Have, you have such fears for yourself? I, I don't know if I would necessarily, so like, I think there, there's a mix of things there. Uh, so like, I think being cautious at, at, on a societal level is just reasonable. I think being fearful is not always helpful. Uh, for myself personally, I, I, I am probably sometimes more anxious than I thought, than I wish I were, even if, to be honest, my like probability of doom is not that high. So I'm more in the 10% range, range than in the 90% range. Uh, but I, you know, I still do think about it sometimes. Like, you know, if we have just 10 years left, might as well, yeah, like work hard on this. Um, yeah, if things go really well, which is, uh, yeah, which I think is totally plausible and like quite likely actually. Um, I haven't thought that much. <laughs> like probably just take a probably just like start with a vacation, but it will probably be a very long vacation because if things go well, I expect like amazing, like I expect things to be amazingly good. Like, you know, the whole, the whole transhumanism singularity story, like very much ex ex uh, extended lifespans, uh, a lot of like abundance, material abundance. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. The whole, and then you, would, you would stop doing research on singularity if this happened? Uh, what do you mean? Like after the singularity, would I stop? Uh... No, if, 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 if you have the positive scenario where everything is good and mm -hmm. you have everything you need for sustenance. Yeah then you wouldn't do what you do today um i well like in one sense for that to happen i kind of feel like the alignment problem has to have been solved so strictly working on alignment is kind of useless but but also more broadly i would expect i would expect me to be much worse than the ai's at research anyway so strictly from like uh, am i doing something useful it would probably be completely useless to do research after that from a, like intellectually ah you mean but AI yeah, will do all the research yes exactly. ah, yeah. i get it okay okay that's interesting <laughs> yeah so what what would you do then 
Um, so what would you do during your own vacation? <laughs> for a year at least, I, I would, I don't know, uh, maybe travel. I haven't traveled that much. Um, maybe go to music festivals, maybe like catch up with friends, which also maybe I'm doing less than I, than I might want to do. Um, yeah, and yeah, just just plan ahead because I, I feel like probably like, like there will be a long life ahead if things go well. So I just like try to think about what do I actually want now that now that there is time to actually think about what I want in the long run and there isn't any yeah potential danger very close. It's pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. Again, as I said, um, my like probability P doom, what I say to people usually like be yeah, <laughs> yeah, probability of things going like us going extinct or like yeah, things like probability of us going extinct, I'm more in the ten percent range. So yeah, I Maybe? So, okay. in one time scale. Because we're going extinct, every everything disappears. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everything is born. Yeah, it's... in like I, I guess to simplify, like on my, like I expect AI on I, I don't know, like my median is somewhere in the five to ten year range. So like in the five to ten year range, I expect somewhere around ten percent probably that we go extinct because I see that basically we don't show alignment. Yeah, it's definitely like 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 yeah, to go heavy. <laughs> I expect that probably more than half of my probability of dying in the next 10 years is from that. Yes. So, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, but that being said, you know, uh, probably 50% or more than 50%, I expect, or like a bit more, I expect things to go really well, like much better than like current life for like the vast majority of people, if not literally for people. So I, I think the upside is incredibly good. I think the, the downside could be absolutely horrible hmm. i understand now, now I, I i understand you much better so it's uh, it was interesting well thank you very much bogdan was thanks for the invitation pleasure we almost two hours in it's, thanks it's it, so it was a lot of fun and uh, yeah and uh, i mean you know i'm optimistic I, I don't fear to be dying of AI in the next 10 years, but I understand your arguments and the, you brought it closer to us. And uh, this, this debate, I think, you know, a lot of, lot of this debate is about understanding where people come from, understand the, the emotions behind the fear, anxiety, before the arguments sometimes the arguments hide that sort of personal aspect of this yeah I, I, on that i think so like yeah i try to so of course i have my own like feelings and like uh, yeah uh, and they do affect like how i perceive the arguments and so on but i do i do try to focus on like the arguments and less on like you know uh feelings and, and yeah i feel like we should probably try to judge uh, based on the arguments mostly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, Bogdan. This Thanks for the fun. invitation. Yeah, yes. it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Yes, yes. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>